Pull out your Bibles. So I know you got them. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please let me know. Um, we will get you one some way, somehow. If you don't know which Bible to buy, you know you want to get one, but you don't know where or how or which one or which translation, we will be glad to help you in any way, shape, or form get a Bible into your hands. Because here at the church, South Bay Chapel, we think very highly of God's Word because God's Word is all about Jesus. We have a high uh, understanding of, or excuse me, our understanding of Jesus is that he is king and that he is revealed and expressed through his Word. So we, we hold the Bible above every other written book ever. And it's not just that we have that opinion, um, it's because of what it is. And so we started this sermon series last week called Ask Your Pastor. Let me tell you one of the biggest motivating, um, uh, or the biggest motivators behind this sermon series. Many folks are afraid to approach their pastor. And it's not exclusive to certain types of people or anything like that. Um, some folks are just very intimidated for whatever reason. Not this particular pastor, but pastors in general. Um, and so people sit and they have these questions that they may have had for decades of time, and they're just afraid to ask um, for whatever reason. Now, some pastors might be off-putting. They might be unavailable and, and that sort of thing, and, and uh, that makes things difficult. But some folks just – there's that gap between pastor and flock. When I understand the Bible and when I understand shepherding, which is what pastoring is, my understanding is that pastors and their flock are together continuously, um, that the, the, the shepherd lives and breathes and sleeps with his flock. He guides them, and uh, our first and primary shepherd is Jesus. He's our chief shepherd. Um, and then he appoints, uh, you know, under shepherds to uh, shepherd his churches. And so there can't be uh, a vitally operating church where there is division between pastor and people. And so I want to encourage you that if you have questions that don't get answered in this series, um, you're always welcome to come and ask me any question. I have um, – this is going to sound arrogant. Let me please, before you judge me, let me, uh, let me um, explain myself. I'm not intimidated by too many questions. But here's why. Because I know it's not up to me to answer them. I know that it's Jesus who's really going to answer these questions for you. He's going to use his Holy Spirit. He's going to speak through something, someone, some way, some circumstance, so that we both can come to the conclusion I'm not so super smart that I have all the answers. I just know where to get the answers from. And so you are welcome to ask any question. You can ask questions about the church or the Bible or Jesus. Why the Bible is the Bible. Why do we worship Jesus? Any number of questions you might have. And so I want to make you as welcome as possible and let you know that, that you can ask me anything that you'd like. That being said, today we're going to look at question number two in our sermon series. Last week it was, why do bad things happen to good people? That was the most frequently asked question when we asked you to ask uh, me some stuff. And, um, and we, we, we know that um, a really bad thing happened to a really good person about 2,000 years ago. That Jesus being sinless, being God, uh, came to this earth and died a sinner's death for us. And that um, because of sin, bad things happen. 
but that because God is so good, he can even take those bad circumstances of your life and somehow redeem them to be used for his glory and for your good and for the good of others. And so the next question, none of these are going to be really in particular order, but the next question uh, we're going to look at, I'm actually going to share the questions that were asked. So the first is, uh, there was two variations of this question. The first was, where did the idea of simply saying a prayer makes you saved come from? Where did we get the idea that we have to, quote unquote, ask Jesus into our heart? The second question says, I'd like to know if one can be saved a second time. In other words, if I gave my life to God but have sinned again since uh, and did not ask to be forgiven for them, do I need to be saved again? So today's question is all about salvation. What is salvation? What's the deal with salvation? What, why are we always asking people if they're saved? And, and what does that even mean? Have you ever been asked a question so simple that is so profound? I pondered this question, what is salvation? A three-word question. It seems so simple, but yet when you start to sit down, you put pen to paper, or you type out something, it is a deeply profound question. And so if you don't know what salvation means or is, hopefully today will be very, very beneficial to you. Um, you'll know what it means to be saved. You'll know uh, how to become saved if you indeed are not. And so um, the first thing I want to look at is the difference between what is true and what has become a cliche. How many people have ever seen the movie Forrest Gump? Like everybody. It's one of the most well-known movies ever, right? So you got Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump had uh, a commanding officer uh, when he was serving our country. What was his name? Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan and they bond this friend they form this bond they have this friendship that transcends their time of serving our country but there's a deep and dark time for Lieutenant Dan Lieutenant Dan spoiler alert he loses his legs in the war and uh Forrest saves him from just dying uh in Vietnam and uh they reconnect in New York City and Lieutenant Dan's not doing so good he's drinking he's he's just living this just horrible life and in a time of desperation, he looks over to Forrest, who's just visiting, and says, Forrest, have you found Jesus yet? And Forrest, being Forrest, said, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. It, it, the reason why I bring up that quote is not because it's particularly funny. It's really not. Um, but the idea of salvation, finding Jesus, being found has so deeply penetrated our culture that references like this in a major motion picture, successful, all across the country, people see that and they can instantly relate to it, even if they're not a Christian. And so if you watch TV or read newspaper articles or, or watch uh, movies, there'll be references to Jesus or his church but it will always come in the form of a cliché. And a cliché can sometimes be something that's true, but it's used and overused and overused to the point where when you hear it, it's like, oh gosh, heard that again. You know, maybe, maybe when you were a kid in high school, there was a, there was a certain cliché that people used that just got overused. In the Christian church, we have so many phrases that we quickly adapt to but we use them so much that they lose all meaning. So in our current 
state right now words like transparency, <clears throat> excuse me, transparency. You, you, you read a blog, you read a book, you read a sermon or listen to a sermon, you'll hear that word thrown around a lot. It's starting to lose its meaning. Now, there's great truth to being transparent as, as a leader and as a, as a people to let people know that we're not just putting up a facade that you see into my life and I see into your life. There's, a, there's an accountability. That's another word that's getting overused. Authenticity, another word, being authentic to the point where, where folks are using that word and not even using it in the right way. Jesus has become a cliché to our culture and even to some churches to where folks get tired of his name and they and they start saying well his his actual name is Yeshua that's the that's the Hebrew uh, of Joshua and that's his actual name Jesus is a is a Latin transliteration or some other business it's because the name of Jesus has been used and overused and used in the wrong way that it becomes cliche but here's the thing i want to remind you of it's the name of Jesus through which we are all saved. And so we have to differentiate. We have to be able to separate between the cliche and the truth. And so what we might know as cliche about salvation, we have to go back to what the Bible actually says about it. So that we aren't just simply asking Jesus to be in our heart, but we actually are are confronted by God and he transforms and changes us from the deepest part of our soul to the very ends of our being. That every part of us goes from being dead to alive. Have you ever gone to, or maybe you guys have had some of these books. I know I have. Um, you, you look at children's books and they're, they're Bible story children books. These are always fun uh, because they take stories like David and Goliath. And, they, and we, we, we water them down so that we can tell them to children. Great story. Good story for, for kids to hear about overcoming and underdogs and all that. Or you take Noah and the Flood. And, and, I, I, and it's, I always – please, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings, but you'll see people put it in their nursery. Noah and – you know, have like the, the ark. Usually it's like a precious moments type of a thing. What's happened is, is these real stories about real men and women have become so cliche that now they decorate our children's rooms. And if you go back to the original stories, you realize these weren't murals in a nursery storylines. These were gruesome. David beheads Goliath at one point. They always omit that from the children's story. Can you imagine how many people were trying to claw their way onto the ark as the waters rose? You never see those claw marks on the side of Noah's ark. Here, here's the reason why I bring that up. It's not to, to condemn anybody for, for reading those stories in a childlike manner, but we have become so accustomed to those stories that we don't even bat an eye when we see them in that particular light. And so we've got to go back to what we what we believe, what is it based on, and what does the Word of God say? Because cliche doesn't save, Jesus saves. And so we're going to look at a few different questions. Here they are, just right off the bat, and then we will take each one and we'll go from there. The first is, why do we need salvation? Number two, what are we being saved from? Number three, how do we get saved? Number four, is there another way to be saved? Number five, how do we know when we are saved? And, and lastly, can we lose our salvation? So often salvation is preached kind of like 
Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I'm just going to use movie references all day long. Um, the idea that you you come up to an altar or you sit with somebody and you recite a scripted prayer and that's your golden ticket. You know, I've got a golden ticket. It's my golden ticket into heaven. I don't want to go to hell because I hear bad things about that place. And I want to go to heaven. And so if I say this certain prayer and ask Jesus into my heart, I've got my golden ticket. And from here until I die, doesn't matter. All that matters is after that moment where I actually die. That is a very low, very cheap, very non-biblical way to view salvation. Salvation has very little to do with getting into heaven, although it brings you into heaven. Salvation brings you into relationship with Jesus. Salvation is all about him. It's not about, it's not about our eternal standing, at least not primarily. We give our lives to Jesus not so that we can avoid hell. That's like saying, I, I married my wife because I didn't want to be single. How many of you ladies, if your husband said that to you, would not be very flattered by that? You would, you would say right off the bat, that's not, that's not love, buddy. That's just you not wanting to be lonely. That's not you. I mean, that's just you not wanting to wash your own clothes or take care of yourself. Um, we, give, we go into a relationship with Jesus, not because we want to avoid fire, but because we realize that in him is true life. And in him, we can repent of our old life. So the first question Really, actually, all these questions, let me back up a little bit. All these questions sort of hinge on how you see God in yourself. If you see this in a very legal uh, way, meaning I'm, I am guilty, I need to be acquitted of my crimes, um, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but God's a, a judge, and I don't want to go to prison, so I'll do everything and anything to get out of prison or have to pay for my crimes and, and Jesus has offered to pay for my crimes. If you see uh, salvation in a legal aspect or in a legal way, it's going to drastically change how you approach God and how you see God. But if you see him as I think the Bible describes him or see salvation as the Bible describes it in one of two ways, one is as you are like a person in a burning building who needs to be rescued from it, or as an orphan child without father or mother who now has a father coming and wanting to adopt you, those two mindsets will completely, drastically change how you view God and how you view salvation. Now, it's not that either one of those is more right or more wrong. It's actually all those working together that best exemplify salvation. Yes, we are guilty of crimes. Yes, we do need someone to step in for us, to take this, this uh, uh, sinful bullet for us. But we are also in a burning building without someone to come and rescue us. We are powerless to be removed from this burning building that's called our life. And being dead in our sins, we're also orphaned spiritually. We have no heavenly father but the good news is that through jesus god has chosen to adopt you for some of you maybe you had really good dads and you understand that metaphor that the bible uses and for some of you who had really bad dads or absent dads and this is a, a harder metaphor to adapt to 
I want to encourage you not to see your heavenly father through the lens of your earthly father. For me, what I've, what I've learned growing up is that my parents weren't superhumans. I've learned that mom and dad, you know, they worked tirelessly and they, and they always took care of us, but they had their flaws and proclivities and they need Jesus too. And I began to see them as humans, still my parents, but I saw them as humans and, and the flaws they might have are just like me. But they're not superhuman. But that doesn't change, when they mess up, that doesn't change how I view God. My heavenly father, my eternal father. So the first question, now that you've got those kind of mindsets all working together, um, why, why do we need salvation? Is Jesus just going around saving people for fun? Is he just, he just wants to be a hero, he wants to swoop in and save us? Why do we need salvation? That obviously is not true. We, to know and to answer this question correctly, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. If you've never read the Bible, the first book of the Bible is the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And in the book of Genesis, the first chapter, we hear about the creation of the earth. And shortly thereafter, everything unravels. Um, most people, when writing a story, they wait till towards the middle to sort of unravel the plot, if you will. Well, things start going down in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. After creating man and creating... Uh, earth and everything all around uh, man, uh, God speaks to the man. And chapter 2, verse 16 says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So to set the scene, you have Adam. Um, he is alone at this point. God says there are these two trees. One of them is the knowledge of good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. Something happens between the words from God to Adam, from Adam to his wife Eve. By the time that the serpent, and this is another story that has become cliche, but by the time the serpent comes to Eve and tempts her to eat this fruit, something's happened. Now, now she tells the serpent, we're not even allowed to touch it. That's not what God said. Somehow, a legalism has already formed with only one command. A legalism has already formed in this tiny family that God has created. And you know the story that after that, they eat, and then they, they, are, they see themselves as naked. They are, they are now sinners. They have, they have broken God's command, and they have rebelled against their God. Because of that one Event You might say that's just one thing. That sets a course and a trajectory for all humans up until today. From that moment on, every person, every child is now a sinner by relation. And many of you know who have raised children, that as these children grow... Right about the time they can talk and walk, they begin to sin, don't they? Oh, they're just, they're just kids. Yeah, and they already know how to sin. They break something. Who did it? Not me. You're lying and disrespecting your parents all in one fell swoop, and you can barely walk. And as they grow, you'll see children who, they can come from the best households. They can have the best upbringing, great moral mom and dad. 
and something will happen and fear will strike them and then they will sin by lying or covering up just like adam and eve did by nature we are sinners why do we need salvation because we are dead in sin why do we need to be saved because we are in that burning building now there's great news that jesus has come to pay for our sins to die on the cross for us but none of that means anything if we don't understand the truth about us that the extension of god's hand in grace to us is not because we deserve it. It's not because that you know that we have done a lot of great things. It's because God seeks to rescue us from our sinful, dead state. Why do we need salvation? Romans 3 and 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins the bible says and paul is going to great lengths in chapter 3 uh, and, and really a large portion of the beginning of the book of romans to prove to the jewish people who would look down upon Gentiles, if you're not Jewish here today, you're a Gentile, the Jewish people would look down upon the Gentiles and say they are unclean, I cannot associate with them, if I touch them, then I am unclean, and I can't worship, and all this other business. And Paul comes to, to demolish that wall and say, no, 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 there is no distinction. In the eyes of God, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. With last week's question, one of the reasons why we we buck at uh, what the Bible says about Jesus, and we say, well, bad things happen to these good people that we know. You know, my my grandma, she never hurt anybody, but but she's going through the worst of things. Or or my friend, they'd be the first one to give you their shirt off their back, and now they, they've been diagnosed with cancer. And we always we elevate people and say they're good people, and the Bible says. There might be some goodness in them. They might do some good things. But at the root of who we are, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we were to sit down and just write out every sin that we have done, we would be here for a very long time. I know that I would. I would run out of ink and pen and paper. And, 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 and to list everything I've ever done would be quite tedious and convicting. So the Bible doesn't view us as, as good people that just need a little help along. The Bible views us as being dead because of sin. Take a moment to just kind of let that sink in. If you're, if you're saved today, if you know what that means, um, then you are alive in Christ. You're, you're not spiritually dead. But if you're not today, it's as though you are dead because of the sins that you have committed, whether it's, the, whether it's what we would call a small sin or a big sin. In the eyes of God, all sins level out. Your sin and my sin and our sin is all sin. It's a very black and white situation. So why do we need salvation? Well, because we are in danger. Because we are 
perishing. We are dying and dead all at the same time. Question number two, what are we being saved from? There's a great move in our in churches today to eliminate hell because it doesn't fit in our head and understanding of a loving God. Um, we don't have that type of liberty as Christians. We don't get to determine what is and what is not. We, many people always tell me, you know, how do you interpret the Bible? And I, I'll tell them usually, I don't interpret it. I long to understand it. Interpretation would say, I read this, and then I try to understand it based on what my knowledge and my experience. Well, my experience and my knowledge is very limited. I have only lived for 36 years on this planet. I have only been to you know, a small percentage of this entire world. And so for me to say, I am the judge of what this book says is kind of arrogant. So my, my understanding or my position is this book says stuff. I want to know what it says. And so when it comes to hell, hell is a very uncomfortable conversation, isn't it? Have you ever tried to lead with that conversation? Hey, how are you doing? Let's talk about hell. Can we just talk about the weather? I mean, can we talk about something else? That's a hard sell. And so you'll notice I didn't start with that, <laughs> but I'll bring it in second. What are we being saved from? Most people would say hell, and they'd be partially true. Hell is a real place. Hell is a, a, a place that we'll be talking about in further questions, so I don't want to get too much into it. We'll answer it more in, uh, in the third or fourth question that's coming up in the next few weeks. But part of that is hell. In Mark chapter 9 verse 42 Jesus is talking to some folks he's talking about people who would cause children to sin and he says something to the effect of um, it'd be better for you to take a big millstone tie it around your neck and jump in the ocean than to cause a child to sin Jesus thinks very highly of children I don't know if you guys know that some of you might come, you might hear the kids jumping around and being loud, and they should be respectful. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, man, Jesus loved kids, and we are going to do our best to teach them to be reverent and loving and kind, but we are also going to allow them to be comfortable and to, to want to be a part of the church. I, I want you to feel comfortable, but I want them to feel comfortable too. I want them to see this place as an extension of their home. Not just some place where they have to wear clothes that are too comfortable and sit in a chair that's too hard to go through a lesson that's too long all on the way to lunch. I want them to be excited to come here on Sunday morning so that you guys will be convicted and be excited to come to church too. That you will, that you will be comfortable here. And that's going to take some time. I understand that. Building a community, another cliche word in the church, building a community of believers is very difficult. Having a sermon and getting together on Sunday, that's not so hard. But when we leave these doors and the rest of the week goes on, we may not see each other until Wednesday or next Sunday. That's not community. That's a club. And we want to, we want to flip that upside down. We want to become a community of believers. Where, where we're not divided, but somehow we're all individual and connected at the same time. That we call upon each other when we need something, or more importantly, we do stuff for people when they're in need. 
that we go out and we invite people to church because we love them. Not because we want to grow it, not because we need a big number, but because we know people need Jesus. And people find Jesus at church, and so I want to bring them to church. So Jesus says, this is why I started talking about kids in the first place. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes your, you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes uh, to be thrown into hell. Then he quotes, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We don't put this verse on t-shirts, do we? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love that one. I have a plan for you, says the Lord. One to blah, blah, blah. We never put this one. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Might be a marketing thing in there. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Many of us will try to interpret this scripture rather than just read it and say, wow, sin is bad. You don't have to have a master's degree in theology to understand that Jesus takes sin pretty seriously, right? But he says that you will be thrown into the hell of fire or into hell, the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where, where the, the uh, fire is not quenched. This word hell that he is referring to, it's the word Gehenna. He's referring to a, a specific place in Israel um, that has a very long and sordid history. This valley in Jesus' day was basically like a city dump, but you would do more than just dump refuse and old stuff there. Bodies would be dumped there. Um, bodies of criminals, bodies of the unclean, quote-unquote. It would just be this eternal fire. And why did they choose that place? They chose that place because if you go to the Old Testament, the Israelites committed a very grave sin by intermingling the worship of God with, with these false gods. And one of these false gods' name was Molech. Molech, if you're unfamiliar with Molech, he was a, a false deity, a demon god, if you will, who required not only the sacrifice but the burning of children. The Jews considered this place, because of that grave sin, they considered that place cursed. And so what do you do with cursed land? You just burn it. And you put your garbage there. Now, some will come in and say, see, Jesus isn't talking about hell, he's talking about a place. And I would say, yes, but let's flip that around a little bit. Jesus is teaching us, and you, teaching us about a place called hell, and giving us the best human example to understand it. When God, when Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, it doesn't mean that the mustard seed is the kingdom of heaven. He is using a, a metaphor or a parable. He's using a, an example of something we can understand to see something or, or perceive something we can't possibly understand. 
Hell is a place where it is hot and eternity is for a long time. And salvation saves us from that. But hell, even in itself, is really a byproduct of a choice that we make first. By, by remaining in sin, we are condemned by God. If, if you find yourself in hell one day, that means you have been rightly and righteously judged by the, by the perfect judge. You have no argument. At the end of the day, you are being saved from God's wrath, which includes hell and eternal separation from him. Hell doesn't sound like a vacation to me. As I've grown to know Jesus, it would hurt more to be eternally separated from him than to be in hell itself. To understand that my God has saved me, that my God loves me, that he has adopted me, that he has given his life for me, to have that relationship taken away, to me that's hell enough before ever suffering in an unquenchable fire where the worm dieth not and where the fire is not quenched. So what are we being saved from? We're being saved from God. Let that sink in for a minute because most of you have been told it's been Satan in hell. I tell you that by before you ever ask for forgiveness, you stand condemned because of your sins and you will suffer because you've been rightly judged by the best judge. People foolishly run around and say things like, only God can judge me. That should scare you to say things like that. To say that, that I, I, you guys can't judge me, only God can judge my sin. Why would you want him to be your go-to when it comes to sin? Because his wrath because of sin, you can't be saved from that outside of Jesus. Why do, what are we saved from? Yes, hell. But we are saved from God and his judgment upon our sin. Okay, so I'm not a big scare you into heaven type of guy. I don't want you to fall in love with Jesus because you're so scared of hell. That goes back to the I, I want to marry you because I don't want to be lonely parable or analogy. But I'm hoping that in laying out everything that I know about eternity, which is limited, but what I know based on what the Bible says, that, that the wheels will begin to turn, that you will open yourself up to the Holy Spirit so that you will begin to realize, you know what, I need to be saved. I am in danger. I am dead and I am, I, I am being judged by the good judge, the just judge. So how do we get saved? Let's, let's go back to how we see ourselves. Romans 8 and 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with, with him. How do you get saved? You put your faith and your belief in Jesus. What does that look like? Well, you ever heard um, the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket? 
sort of essentially diversify. Maybe if you're into investing money and that sort of thing. Don't put all your investments in one thing because if that falls, you're done. Put it in a bunch of things so that if one falls, the rest can be supported. Okay. Putting your faith in Jesus is the equivalent of putting all of your eggs into his basket. You don't put a couple in his and say, well, I, you know, if he falls through, I've still got this. I still got my eggs. Putting your faith in Jesus is the same as saying, you know what, Jesus, here's all of me. I hold nothing back. Here is my life. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus, to believe that he is your God. He's not only the God, but he is your God. There are people who know that Jesus exists, and they know his claim to be the Son of God, and they have this knowledge, and that knowledge does not save them. Their salvation is found in faith in Christ. And when you become uh, a Christian, you don't only become a Christian, you become a child of the one true God. This goes back to how we see ourselves. If we see ourselves as orphans needing parents, now we see salvation in one of its truest forms as God who has come to us and said, yes, I want you. I want to adopt you. I want to give you my last name. I want to bring you into my house. I want to be your father. And I want you to be my son or to be my daughter. If you only see this as a, as a legal transaction, you miss this part and this truth and the beauty of this. But if you see it as both, you begin to see the intimacy that is preached through the word in the gospel of Jesus. That God wants more than just a legal transaction with you. He wants to love you and, and, and be loved back by you. He wants to have a relationship with you that is deeper and greater than anything you've ever known. We need to be forgiven of our sins. Romans 3 and 22 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift uh, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This works in the opposite. For those who are not in Christ Jesus, there's condemnation hanging over your head because you've sinned. Before I gave my life to Jesus, it was like my head was in a guillotine. The condemnation hung over my head and then I heard the gospel of Jesus. I called upon the name of Jesus. I put my faith in him. And my head is not only removed from the guillotine, but the guillotine is crushed. Not only is the, is the charge forgiven, but the condemnation that came with it is obliterated. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the key phrase. Are you in Christ Jesus today. Jesus not only changes our de our destination, but he changes our position. He doesn't just change that we'll go from hell to heaven. He takes us from being spiritually dead to being born again, from being an orphan to being a son or a daughter. He takes us from the deepest, darkest part of our lives and brings us into the light. So, so this is ideally 
how it should be, but practically, how do we do this? And I think this is why many people, you know, come to the point where they just say, hey, ask Jesus into your heart. Because practically, we have to do something, right? I mean, we can't just walk around and all of a sudden I'm a Christian. Like, I've got to do something. And where the world would say, well, you've got to pay back, you've got to do good stuff. If you've done a bad thing, do a good thing so they neutralize each other. The Bible says it's not by our works that we'll be saved, it's by faith in Jesus Christ. We'll do good works as a result of our faith, but, but that, those works don't save us. Jesus' works save us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, uh, but prior to that, Peter is preaching a sermon. It's the first sermon outside of Jesus. He's standing up. He's at, he, it's the day of Pentecost, a Jewish festival. He, they, they, they stand up uh, and preach the gospel for the very first time as, as a church. And, and it's a great and glorious day. People are speaking in tongues. It's just, it's, it's, it's exploding. People hear the message and, and they, they cry out to Peter in verse 37. Uh, Brothers, what shall we do? They heard the gospel. You've heard the gospel that Jesus, being God, came to this earth, died a sinner's death so that we could become the children of God. That through faith that we can be forgiven and be given the life that Jesus has. They heard that same message and said, well, what do we do? We, we see that something's wrong. We are sinners. He is not something. What do I do? Peter responds. Repent, this is verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he, being Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Because of the grace that God has extended to you through Jesus, you now have an opportunity to repent. Repent is one of those words that was a cliche and has kind of fallen out because nobody uses it anymore. Repentance literally just means this. I was going this direction, and I changed my direction to go the opposite way. I was walking towards sin, Satan, death, and hell, but through Jesus, I have turned away, and now I'm walking towards him. And we can do that not because of our own power. We can do that not because we're so smart. We can do that because Jesus has extended grace to us to allow us to do that. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, if you call on the name of Jesus today, you will be saved. How do you get saved? Call on his name. Jesus, please save me. You want to say, come into my heart? Fine. Go ahead. I, I don't get caught up on issues of semantics. I, I want you to come into a relationship with Jesus where you are completely transformed because you have truly met him. It does us no good as a church. It does you no good as an individual or no good for your family. If you just come in, say some words and walk out and expect the whole world to change, but nothing has changed in you.
Is there another way to be saved? If you've been in church for a while, you understand that the the answer to this is quite simple. No. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through his example, not through his kind words, not through his cleansing of demons and healing and miraculous things, but through Jesus you come to the Father. Acts 4 and 11 says, uh, this Jesus, this is Peter preaching again, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Buddha will not bring you salvation. Muhammad will not bring you salvation. Allah will not bring you salvation. The, the, the countless plethora of other false gods in our world will not bring you salvation and our faith is exclusive in that it is based on your faith and not on your works that you don't have to do anything to make god love you that god loves you before you've ever done anything that before you were ever cleaned up before you were ever right with him he loved you and and that might that might be hard to comprehend. If you have children, just imagine your children and how much you love them and how even when they do the worst of things, you still love them with an unquenchable love. That when your child breaks something or is disrespectful or runs away or, or just does something that breaks your heart, you still love them. You still love everything about them because they are of you. Other kids take a hike. I don't know you. You're not my kids, but my kids, I love them. And God loves you like that, but more. Is there another way to be saved? Simply put, no, there is no other way to be saved. This is the plan that God has laid out in his word from the beginning to the end. Even in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, there's this great promise from God that this seed will come from the woman who will, you know, it's the first inference to virgin birth of Jesus that a seed would come from this woman who would crush the head of Satan, that Satan would bruise his heel, but that he would crush Satan. All throughout the Bible, we're given this promise of a Messiah who would come. And Jesus comes to fulfill those promises or those prophecies. And through him, he's the only way that you can be saved. How do we know, though, that we can be saved or that we are saved? That's usually a big question. How do I – I don't feel saved. We don't get a membership packet. Nobody gives us a new card that says, you know, Tony Paredes, I am saved. We don't have anything we can look up on the internet to say, hey, am I saved? Yes, I am saved. Salvation has less to do with your feelings and emotions then with the promises that God has laid out in his word, we've gone through tons of scripture already about how we are sinners, but yet God has saved us in spite of our sinfulness. We know because God has promised us. We have seen God fulfill his promises not only in Jesus, but in, in other prophecies of the word. We have no reason to doubt what he has said. We simply now exercise our faith in Christ. Christ has said that not only has he died for our sins, but that he will return, that we will spend eternity with him. Then we will base our faith on that promise. 
Do you feel saved? No, there's going to be days where you don't feel saved. You know why? Because you still have your flesh fighting that. Your flesh is still trying to drag you back into sin. And your spirit that's now alive is like, no, we don't do that anymore. There's a fight and a struggle. I don't feel saved. No, but, but the evidence is there because you're fighting. The evidence is there because you are giving, you're not, or excuse me, rather, you're not giving into it. Jesus has done something in you to change you, to want to be changed. So first we have the word of God, then we have the evidence. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Up until this point, the church consisted of literally worldwide about 120 people. Right now we number in the billions, but then... Day of Pentecost, some 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, 120. Peter stands up, he preaches, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't, you don't earn the Holy Spirit. I can't give you the Holy Spirit. You repent, you get baptized, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He preaches this sermon, and then directly thereafter... The book of Acts says, those who received the word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. I don't know about you, but if we went from a church of 120 to 3,000, they'd have a lot of problems. We, where are we going to put everybody? That's a good problem to have, right? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need, or as, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you want to know if you are saved or not, if you want a litmus test that will tell you, am I or aren't I? Here's what I would propose to you. How do you view Jesus? How do you view his church? How do you view his word? Because these folks, as they gave their life to Christ, as they were baptized and repented of their sins, received the Holy Spirit as a gift, what do we see exemplified? Folks who want to be a part of the church, who want to hear Jesus taught, who want to give their life to Jesus, who want to be with the church. If you come and tell me I'm a Christian, but I don't want to go to church, and I don't want to read my word, and I don't really think that highly of Jesus, I just don't want to go to hell is what you're telling me. And I would question the authenticity of your salvation based on the fruit that I see. But if you come and say, I don't know if I'm saved or not, I just, but I know this, I'm just hungry for God's word. I read it and I read it and I don't understand it, but I've got to keep reading it. And, 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 and I, I can't wait for Sunday to roll around. And last week when you were preaching, blah, 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 and it totally hit home. And the other day I was so burdened to pray for somebody. I just had to pray for them. I barely even know them and I don't even know what's going on, but I just, I had to pray for them. So I spent, you know, X amount of time praying for them. And oh, you're having a potluck. What can I bring? Oh, and this person's in need. What can I bring you? 
I just want to be a part of what God is doing. If you want to ask me what it looks like, for what the evidence is of somebody being saved, to me, that's what it is. Somebody who wants to be a part of what Jesus is doing. They love his church as Jesus loves his church. They read the analogy or, or the parable that Paul uses about the church being like a body and that everybody plays a part. That, that some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are knees, some of us are thumbs. But we all play our part. And we don't fight and bicker because we all want to be the hand or we all want to be the, the shoulders. We, we all find our place and then we, we, we become that body. And some are more glamorous and some are not. Preaching might be perceived to be more glamorous than cleaning the bugs out of the light fixtures. But you know what? We need both. And making coffee might not be as glamorous as going to someone's house, but we need both. If you want to know today if you are saved or not, truthfully, I'll tell you, I, I have no indicator. This is, this is just me using the evidences in front of me. This is me using scripture to determine if you are saved. I would say that if you want to be a part of his church, if you want to read his word, I'm not talking about understand it. I'm not talking about teaching it or preaching it. I'm not even talking about large chunks at a time. But you know that this is the word of God and I have to read this and get as much of this in my head and heart as I possibly can. And if you want to be a part of what he's doing at, at this church or any church, and you want to pray and you want to love people who are very much not like you. I always marvel. I look around at this church. You guys are all completely different. You're all weird in your own way. And that's good. But if, you were, if we were to leave this building and take away Christ, would we, would we ever cross each other's paths? I don't know. But that's why God, God brings us together because we are so different. All of our weirdness works off of each other to bring the gospel of Jesus to Canastota and Oneida and Wampsville and Sylvan Beach and every other little city around here, a little town. We can't all be one thing, but all together we can make one big thing, those of the body of Christ. Do you want that? Does it come with pain? Yeah. How many people here have a, a family free of pain? No, none of us do. Families do stuff that hurt one another sometimes, inadvertently, indirectly, sometimes purposefully, because we're not that great. Church family shouldn't, but sometimes we do. And there's no excuse for it. There should only be repentance and grace for it. But it happens. All I want to do is, is, is break down maybe the ideal in your mind that that church is like a utopia and nothing bad ever happens. If I just go to church and just pray at the altar and if Pastor Tony just prays for me, then everything will be okay. I want to sort of just demolish that so that you know I have Jesus, everything will be okay. Whether I'm praying in my car or I'm praying in my bed or I'm praying at the altar or I'm praying at church or I'm praying at Walmart, which go to Walmart, you got to pray a lot, that Jesus is there with me. That I don't need to go to a holy place with a holy man in a holy circumstance. I just need to speak and pray out to God because he is with me and I am with him. See, salvation, when you, when you ask that simple question, what is salvation? It's like peeling back a, 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 an onion. So many layers. I think I've been preaching for about 
I don't know. How long has it been? Somebody's keeping time. I know you guys are. But we could just go on and on about this because it's such a deep issue. But rather than do that, what I want to do today is invite you to be saved. Maybe saying, Pastor Tony, I've done this before. I've said the prayer. That's okay. I have been saved countless times. Do you need to be saved again? I kind of glossed over that question. No. I believe that once you are transformed by Jesus, you are eternally saved because Jesus' work on the cross is bigger than the sins of your future. Can you lose your salvation? Well, only if Jesus has hands that aren't tight enough to hold you. That's the way I would put that. Some people, This is actually an, a point that divides the church. Some will say, yes, you can lose your salvation. Some will say, no, uh, you cannot. I go, my, my proof of whether you can lose it or not is always found in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son never ceases to be the son of the father in that parable. He goes and he leaves and he takes his inheritance and blows it on the worst type of living but when he comes back, he still has his father. Now, I believe that there are some who say the prayer in their heart and they expect the world to change without them changing, and they leave. And you'd say, that guy was a Christian, but then he left and he lost his salvation. I would just question whether he had salvation at all. And we can disagree with this or on this somewhat. I'd rather be unified than, uh, than uniform in this scenario. I think there's some... There's some room for us to coexist with, with these two different views. I'd rather get to a place where I know that my eternity is secure, not based on what I have done, but based on what Jesus has done. If I can do something that is bigger than Christ's sacrifice, then maybe I, I don't understand Christ's sacrifice. Maybe I don't understand salvation. So, that being said, I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus today by calling upon his name, by, by reaching out to him, not because he's far away, but because his hand has already reached out to you. And some of you have problems, I know, you have financial problems and health issues and your family's going crazy and your marriage is disintegrating and all this stuff is happening. I guarantee you, though, um, if you treat the symptoms, things will just keep getting worse. But if you treat... The cause, the symptoms will begin to diminish. So let's stand. Let's do this. Rather than raising our hands, rather than taking role of who is and who's not, let's just take a moment to pray together. Let's take stock of our lives. Let's reflect for a moment. Where am I truly at? Do I, am I really the Christian I think that I am? Am I just a good person trying to be a good moral person and, and Jesus can be taken out of the equation and I'm not any different? Let's just close our eyes. Let's bow your heads, I guess, if you'd like. And pray with me. I mean, you can hear me pray and, and uh, agree with me if you'd like, but um, if you want to take this time to vocally prayer or internally pray, uh, that's okay too. But don't let this be a time where you just wait until it's all over. Engage with God. Say, Ask God these questions. Am I saved? Do, 
Do I know Jesus? Father, we praise you today. And the question of salvation is a, is a multifaceted, layered question that we cannot answer completely in just a one-hour sermon. But Lord, we are asking today not only what is salvation, but are we saved? And the last thing I would want to do, Lord, is to, is to give seeds of discord to your people. That they would, that they would be wishy-washy about their salvation or, or scared or fearful. My hope, Lord, is that, that in this moment and in this time that there is an assurance that not only are we saved, but we're your children. We're not just saved from hell, but you have rescued us from the orphanage, the spiritually dead orphanage, and now we are your children. That we are made alive in Christ. That our life that we have now, the, 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 the beat of our heart is not just a physical heart beating, but spiritually the life of Christ has been imparted to us. That, Lord, we would begin to see evidences externally of what you've done internally. That as we do repent of our sins, that as we are baptized in the name of Jesus, that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that we, that we live out that gift, that we begin to desire your church and your word and your people and praying and the teaching of the church that we would all become the body of Christ. And Lord, all of us, your word is very clear. It pulls no punches. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And Father, we repent of our sins today. I repent of my sins, Lord. The sins of being quick-tempered, judgmental, and just being things that you would never call a Christian to do or to be. I ask for your forgiveness, Lord. As your people pray and call up their own prayer, their own sins, Lord, may they, may they find your grace as we repent. Father, many of us have been baptized in the name of Jesus. For those who aren't, Lord, may you burden their hearts to be baptized. Even in, the, even in this cold weather in New York, Lord, that we'd find a place with warm water to baptize uh, your people. And that you would give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, it is a gift. And we cannot control the giver and we cannot control the gift. But we ask for it, Lord, and we seek it diligently. That we may indeed become a part of the body of Christ. And long to be a part of it. And look past the wrongs. And look past the hypocrisy. And look past the individuals that are imperfect just like us. And look to your son Jesus so that the gospel of your son Jesus can be preached, that this message we have heard today can be shared with countless others, that one day we will stand with you in eternity knowing that you have used us, these weak and tiny vessels, you have used us to carry your glorious message so that others could be saved as well. And Father, I give you the praise today for these people here today. Lord, may you bless them. May this be the beginning. May these be seeds planted that as the week progresses, that these truths would come out and their salvation would become evident. And we give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.